Hello, good evening and welcome to Nothing Very Much in Particular. This is another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Mild Mannered Max, and as ever, I'll be joined in just a few moments by Belgium's premier export, Mr Nick Amy's journalist, author, cultural commentator and all-round jolly good geezer. Tonight we're going to be discussing one of the most iconic albums in English pop music history, not just in Britpop music history. It is, of course, the second album from Suede Dogman Star, an album blighted by interband warfare and drugs, but which nonetheless now stands as a testament to the genius of one of the greatest bands ever to come out of this septic aisle. Good evening, Mr. Amy's. Good evening, Paul. How are you? I'm very well. That was quite good for something that wasn't scripted, right? I yeah, would have never known. Never <laughs> known. <laughs> well, my friend, here we are, Dogman Star. And it's funny because we were throwing ideas backwards and forwards about what we should do for the next episode. And both of us had this feeling that we must have talked about this before. Yeah, it seemed because of our journey through Suede had kind of jumped around a little bit. And like you said, we also missed out coming up which no doubt will do i'm looking forward to that one as well but uh, yeah it just seems that something that it it should have been something that we'd done already considering some of the um iconic and high points of uh this era that we call Britpop. yeah that's right well let's let's start there actually nick this era we call Britpop is dogman star a Britpop album I think Suede went out of their way to make something which wasn't a Britpop album, and they came up with something which is probably as far away from what was being made in 1994 than you can possibly get. And I mean, <clears throat> you know, as you've said in, in the introduction, it comes from a very dark place, this album. And I think from this rubble, I think Suede created a landmark album but I think it's one which deliberately kind of assassinated this early persona which they had, which was created by the music press, I must add, this kind of founding fathers, fathers of Britpop title. And uh, I think this record is effectively a vinyl kind of representation of the scorched earth policy. I mean, I think with Dogman Star Suede basically destroyed everything they had, including themselves, and they left nothing behind so that eventually, after this internal war was over, they could kind of rise phoenix-like from the ashes. But I mean, back in 94, who would have known that there would be any survivors after Dogman Star because of what happened and what they actually came up with? But the actual music itself, it's so different and it's so bleak and it's so dark in comparison to, to what was starting to come out in 94 from other bands which would then be labeled Britpop as well that you can you have to say that it's a deliberate uh, it's a, it's a deliberate album against what was coming out it's it's a rejection of that I think I think that in those early days of Britpop before it was Britpop before that term was coined I could imagine that Brett Anderson was probably quite happy to be seen as a figure at the vanguard of a new movement of British rock pop music. I think that once those slight tinges of jingoism crept in, probably with the select magazine front cover with the you know Yanks Go Home and the Union Jack, I think he saw the writing on the wall very early. I, th I think he saw where it was going to go. I think he saw the type of person that that was going to draw in. And Suede were never that band, right? Suede yeah. were never a band for the insiders. Suede were never going to be able to make a record for lads. Suede were always David Bowie. Suede were always the Smiths. Suede were always Cherry Red Records or Rough Trade. They were, they were never going to be, you know, a kind of creation records band. That, that was just never going to happen for them. And I think you're right. I think that for all that there was the internal strife and struggle, which contributed to what, what, what came after, I think there was a scorched earth policy. I think there was a desire to do something 
completely different. And while it, it, it has echoes of all of those early influences, right? You can still hear bits of Bowie. You can still hear bits of the Smiths and all those other things. But it seemed to be drawing on different aspects of those influences. You know, we're, we're, we're delving into the Berlin era Bowie. There's a little bit of, you know, late period Scott Walker. There's a little bit of... I mean, even people like Jobriath, I guess, you know, are kind of making an, a, an appearance with things like Still Life, that kind of, you know, more kind of orchestral, more extreme glam rock. It's it's such a peculiar album. And it's worth pointing out, I think, at the beginning, Nick, that it was not really a popular record. It was a successful record, but it wasn't a popular record. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think... Um... From what I understand and what I've read, I think there was a. It all goes down to the um, the story behind what's being made, you know. Mm. And I mean, I'm one of these people which uh, I, I love these stories. I'm drawn to the stories around bands and their records. I think, you know, the listening experience is enhanced greatly from having knowledge of what was going on at the time of the people yeah. involved. You know, the social environment, the cultural landscape, etc., etc. Uh, this, this kind of helps me to understand the music and where it's coming from, what it's trying to say. And um, I think in this case, with Dogman Star, I think it went against uh, the record uh, at its release because a lot of people thought that Suede were no longer going. There was this understanding that when Bernard Butler was no longer part of the band, that they'd split up. They hadn't said anything to really change that opinion i mean they said that we were going to continue we're going to look for a new guitarist and blah 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 but it was all very murky and what had been re uh, reported on the split and the relationships within the band had been very bleak and very dark and um i don't think it was a very positive spin or a, a positive place in which to release an album and people probably thought okay are they still going on one hand, is it going to be any good because of what went on on the other? And yes, it didn't It didn't do as well as was expected. And of course, then they had this, um, before uh, the album was released, they had a very kind of difficult US tour. And so the um, reaching out to the US markets also didn't work out. And so I think the whole momentum from the, the debut album was lost within this whole mist of what exactly what is actually going on with the band and so i yeah. think it had an effect well it's it's worth maybe filling in the blanks for people you know you've you've got a situation here where bernard butler's father has died just before they go off on this american tour butler's also just got engaged to his fiance at that point i think i'm right in saying so he's in yeah. a state of some emotional flux, to put it mildly. Relationships between him and the rest of the band aren't particularly great. I mean, there are rumours that he was travelling separately on that US tour, um, either in taxis or on his own, or interestingly on the on the bus of the Cranberries, who were the support act on that tour. And then there's this kicking the balls, I guess, for Suede when partway through the tour, because of the success the Cranberries were enjoying with Linga, they become the headline act. So the Cranberries have been dragged out to the States to be the support act for Suede, and then halfway through, they're the main ticket draw. So they become the main band. I mean, there's so much stuff going on at that point. And then you've got this kind of toxic relationship between Brett and Bernard. It, I mean, it just must have been hideous. And then you chuck into that what we now know about Brett's experimenting with all sorts of drugs, including, we think, heroin and certainly acid. I mean, he's been quite open about that, that he was experimenting with psychedelic or psychotropic drugs, I beg your pardon. What a, what soil with which to try and grow something healthy in? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, as you say, you've got a grieving and lost genius of a guitarist who's warring with his friends, singer losing himself in acid, trying to find his way out of the boundaries that this new fame is constructed around him. You have a band falling apart. Uh, yeah, it's a climate in which unsurprisingly darkness can spread. And I think Dogman Star has this coal black seam kind of running through it because of this. And uh, But, you know, usually, however, from circumstances like this, great art can be born. And there's an argument to say that 
Dogman Star is great art. And, well, uh, that, that's, we'll that's, a, that, that's a really interesting point. It's, it's worthwhile, I think, as well, Nick, to talk about the fact that Butler, of course, leaves before the album is even completed. Yeah, um, absolutely. And session musicians play you know, his demo parts note for note. Um, there's all sorts of poisonous stuff going on. I think there's a, there's a great story about Bernard Butler doing some interview with a guitar magazine because that was his thing at that point wasn't it he wouldn't talk about anything other than, than guitars you know That's so he only right, did yeah. interviews with those types of magazines and he basically said that Brett didn't know anything about music and if it wasn't ABC he didn't get it and blah 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 and you know there was all these kind of nasty musical differences being played out in public as well um, and the Bernard Butler, also not a huge fan of Ed Buller as the producer. He'd wanted somebody else in to produce. And it's just, I mean, it's toxic. You know, the, the more you read about it, if you read um, Love and Poison, or mm. if you read John Harris's book on Britpop, or if you go back and read any of the old interviews from the time, it's not a healthy environment. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, I think, an apocryphal tale. I mean, it may, may well be true, I guess, about the very last conversation between Butler and Anderson ends with Butler effectively saying you're a fucking cunt to, to Brett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which yeah. is, which is, you know, that's <laughs> not, it's not exactly a, a, an ellipsis for a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, I mean, it, it's pretty much a full stop. Of, yeah, yeah, there's no, there's no semicolon yeah. at that point. You know, yeah, there is no yeah, more to no. come. Um, exactly. And this uh, whole story about um, and Bernard Butler coming to the studio and all his gear is out on the street. Mm. And the doors are locked, and it's like, okay. And then going off to record, you know, contractually obliged guitar solos and stuff in completely different studios and kind of mailing them in and things like that. It's it's a really bizarre situation. And like I said before, I, I love these stories in a way, but in this one, it's really quite sad. And the implosion of Suede Mark One is not something to be celebrated. You know, it's a story which maybe gives, you know, elevates the record uh, a little bit like some of the great records have these legends which come from the stories around them. And uh, But this one is an uncomfortable one. And uh, f- for that to help boost the mythical status of the album is a bit sad because at the heart of it is th- there were people who have had relationships who have been friends and have suffered loss and they're suffering from stresses and strains from the situation they're in. And it's all poured into this record. And uh, yeah, it's an album which is referred to as everything from a masterpiece to a Gothic monstrosity. And I think the truth kind of lies somewhere in between that because of these things feeding into it. Yeah, maybe maybe it's some kind of monstrous masterpiece. Um, yeah, yeah, that's not a bad that's not a bad take on it to be sure. Well, you and I, of course, love Suede, Nick. Um, and before we get into maybe looking at each of the tracks, I, I wonder where it sits in your kind of personal listings in terms of Suede albums. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Personally, for me. Um, Dogman Star is the Empire Strikes Back of suede albums. <laughs> if, if their debut is A New Hope, a game changer kind of constructed from raw rudimentary talent and coming up is the shiny glossy full stop minus Ewoks, then um, Dogman Star is, yeah, the gritty bleak, emotionally fraught and jarring bridge between them and i think it's the most artistic of the three the first three uh it suffers the most it has a titanic struggle at its heart and i think even though i think suede the debut album is the most important one and coming up is probably the most cohesive and enjoyable one which you know just to be clear i don't think would turn the jedi in the same way um (laughs) (laughs) i think dogman star is the best of the first three albums and really would anyone in this day and age have the balls to kind of come out and make a a follow-up to a debut record which was so important which had kind of reawoken british music and thrust its band into the limelight at such breakneck speed i don't think so they and what they did and how they did it and that the fact that they actually managed it is as astonishing as the record itself i think so for me um 
there are other suede albums which I enjoy more to listen to, but I think it's definitely one of the most artistic and best. Well, one of the things that Brett Anderson has has said about it was that it was, and I'll quote here, it's tortured, epic, extremely sexual and personal. So I I think that makes it um, more like uh, the work of uh, Pasolini than George Lucas. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, Now, (laughs) now I can tell you you right now, Nick, I I promise you right now that um, that Twitter account, uh, Clint of the Day, who award uh, people, uh, Uh, that that one sentence from me where I have uh, trashed George Lucas's legacy and invoked the memory of Pasolini is going to see me awarded with yet another Clint of the Day uh, because he gave me Clint of the Day for some equally uh, pretentious statement. And can I say he was right to do so? Right, <laughs> let's let's get into the, the nuts and bolts of it. I've got to be very honest with you here, Nick. I, f- I feel our relationship has got to that point. And I didn't get Dogman Star on release. I don't mean I didn't buy it. I did buy it. I didn't get it. Yeah. Um, my musical palette as a 21-year-old um, boy from a coastal town that they forgot to bomb, come Armageddon, come, in 1994, was the equivalent of fish fingers, chips and peas. You know, Mm -hmm. it it was the greatest hits of the kinks. It was madness. Yeah, the Smiths were lurking around and so was a lot of other kind of, you know, um, for want of a better phrase, cooler stuff. But I didn't know about the, the things that Suede were drawing on for Dogman Star. So when I bought it, I, re- I, I didn't understand it. And so I rejected it for quite a long time. I, I, I felt it was, I don't, I don't know that I thought it was too weird because I was a weird kid and a weird young adult and, and, and possibly I'm a, a, a weird middle-aged man, but I couldn't connect with it. And interestingly, it took about a year or two and about a year or two later, I, I, I had what I now know to be my first sort of depressive episode and various things were going on in my personal life and interestingly it was this album that I found myself listening to I was drawn to it at that point it was almost as if you know it was the soothing balm of Gilead at that point the the the, the pain and the personal nature of some of the the songs and the lyrics even though they were still confusing to me began to mean something more uh, at that point so the first time that I heard introducing the band, I actually stopped the album. Interesting. Yeah, really. I, I, yeah, I stopped, mm. stopped it, put it back in the CD case, and probably came back, you know, a day or two later and listened to the rest of it. I don't have any firm recollection of that, but I definitely remember just thinking, no, I don't, I don't get it. What would you say about introducing the band? Well, before we get to introducing the band, I would say that I agree with you wholeheartedly on that initial experience of the whole album. I was very much. Uh, my my own experience is very much like that as I, I i got it and then didn't get it and i, I think i persevered I, I went through it and then decided at the very end that i didn't have a flying fuck of an idea what was going on and um yeah i don't think it was because it was too dark because jesus i was a teenage goth i've been pretty much <laughs> quite quite dark before getting to this point so this was not that was not the point where I, I I couldn't get a grip on it there was something else about it which I didn't get maybe it was coming from the debut album to this which was mm. so jarring maybe it was also what was coming out from other bands at the time and thinking that suede blur were going to be on the same kind of level and then listening to this and it's like no they're not it's not this is not modern life is rubbish or this is not pop scene this is not anything like that i don't know what this is and so maybe yeah i then came back to it 
even longer, even more in the future than you. I kind of left it and looked at it and kept looking at it and going, mm, no, mm, I'm not ready. And then at some point, I don't know what it was. It wasn't a, a, a depressive episode. It was something like, well, I feel like I should listen to it. And then when I did, I did get it. But we're talking about introducing the band here. And uh, yeah, I don't know. For me, I kind of like the idea of an introduction that isn't a, a catchy song. Because yeah. it builds the interest. It piques the curiosity. It kind of draws you in. You think, okay, what's this going on? I mean, this one was weird, you know. It was like, as you said before, Brett was, by his own admission, taking a lot of acid at the time. And this open is kind of opener is queasy, kind of echoey, like a bad trip with you know, these barely human voices coming in, pulsing through the music. And it's kind of swimmy and it sloshes about from side to side. And... Uh, when I was listening to it again recently, I, I thought, you know, it sounded like it should fit over some scenes from like performance, something like that. And then I read that Brett was apparently watching yeah. the film every night. That's right. He was living in Highgate, which it fits perfectly, you know. But um, yeah, I think introducing the band does a very good job of setting out the stall for Dogman Star because it's this murky, swaggering dissection of, I don't know, some kind of darkly psychedelic collapse has something which sets you up for what's to come but yeah when i first heard it i didn't know what that was going to be and i wasn't ready for it so yeah well, it always it always reminds me to keep the film theme going it, it it always invokes for me images from kubrick's a clockwork orange you know the the violence of the lyrics you know a savage subservient son um Tears of suburbia, chic thugs stutter through a stereo dream. You know that it has a feel of a clockwork orange for me, and I I, I think that lyrically, you're right in everything you say about the music. I think lyrically, it it reads like some kind of stream of consciousness piece of poetry. You know, as as, as if the words have just come to him. And I I wonder if you're right about the influence of the acid at this point. But I I love the lyrics to this. I I think it's it's poetry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, going back to it now, I really appreciate it a lot more. And uh, <clears throat> I've actually recently done a compilation, you know, just for my own entertainment and uh, started it with introducing the band just because I like that kind of unhinged introduction to something. And then I think they've got it right where they come in with the next song because it's then punches a little bit cleaner and harder well, that's right. Uh, well, and, and that that song, of course, is, is "We Are the Pigs," um, yeah. which I think was also the first single. Right, I think "We Are the Pigs" was the first single, um, which features one of the the greatest B sides by anybody ever in the history mm. of pop music, "Killing of a Flash Boy." Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that that is for me, despite also being a very odd and peculiar song, and it carries on some of the musical themes and some of the lyrical themes from introducing the band. But it's the most Mm, it's maybe not the most, but it's one of the most pop and accessible moments on the album. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's quite fitting that it's the first single um, because it's also, as you've probably read as well from your your research, we probably picked up on the same things that um, it was also quite a divisive decision within the band, with uh, Brett sticking to his guns, wanting "We Are the Pigs." There's opposition from the record company. You wanted a new generation. Matt Osman, the bassist, saying oh, this is commercial suicide to go with We Are The Pigs, favouring the wild ones instead. But then there's Brett saying that this had the drama and power which re represented the album's message. And he was right. I think he's right on that score completely. It rolls with this great Bernard Butler riff. There's Brett calling for rebellion on the streets for people to join him on the firing line in this kind of post-apocalyptic dystopian London. It's sinister, but it's also got a great sing-along, which uh, I think should have done a lot better as a single. All right, then.
And it did, but then, you know, as we said earlier on, these split rumours probably um, had something to do with that. The bleak contrast with what was what else was going on with early Britpop tunes, maybe that had something to do with it as well, I don't know. Well, you know, We Are The Pigs was not about being young um, and keeping your teeth nice and clean. Huh. No. Do you know what I mean? And that, that that is not in any way meant to decry um, things like All Right by Supergrass, who I'm delighted are back, by the way. But and Me too. This was always going to be a hard sell, musically and lyrically. I mean, again, it has a a level of poetry that the first album didn't have. The, the, the first album is definitely pop lyrics, glam rock lyrics in some ways. And yeah, there are you know dark themes going on and all the rest of it, but you know they, they read like pop lyrics. But a lot of the stuff on Dogman Star absolutely stands alone. You know, lyrically, you can take these lyrics out. I mean, I'm sitting looking at, at them here on my computer screen, the lyrics for the pigs, and it, it looks like poetry. It, it doesn't mm. even look like a set of song lyrics. And I'm talking just about the way the lines appear on the screen. It's a, yeah, it's a fantastic thing. And you're right, that sort of post-apocalyptic dystopian vision, that was always going to be tricky to get into the top ten. But I, that, that's the great thing about Suede, right? That they, yeah. they, would, they would pick a song like this. I've got no doubt at all that Suede could have written A Park Life, that Suede could have written A Wake Up Boo. They they are incredibly gifted musicians. They are not interested. They are not interested. They they don't see themselves, I don't think, who am I to speak for them, but the the feeling that you get, the vibe, dare I say it, that one gets from Suede is that they see this as art, that they are actually elevating it it's, it's, it's the difference between an adam sandler movie and you know something by ozu you know one one is moving images art and one is popcorn fluff both have their place but we are the pigs is ozu you know it's it's not the kind of adam sandler of a lot of what Britpop was doing at this point no no i mean come on let's be honest as we've said you know suede eventually hated Britpop when it came down to it they were I mean yeah. they were happy they were happy to bear the mantle of creators in a way to start with but the more you know cartoon aspects of the movement and this crass humor the laddism booziness you know they rejected it and this rejection I think can be heard on on this track especially these crunching guitars there's horns and that creepy choir the kids you yeah. know we will watch them burn at the at the end. You know, it's hardly live forever, is it? It's not something which is like <laughs> going to get you like, you know, all singing. We will watch them burn. Where you got like a few pints in you and like swaying with your mate. You know, got your arm. Yeah, it's not it's not a sing along in the pub. It's like when, whenever I hear the kids singing that, I I think again. That's funny. There's a lot of film stuff coming to my mind. I don't know what mm. that's about, but I always think of, and it's very obvious. But the Wicker Man. Oh yeah, you know, oh, yeah, we were, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah, you exactly, could see them yeah. all, you know, holding hands around the wicker man as poor Iwa Wuwa pleads yeah. for God to save his life, you know. We Jesus all watched Christ. them burn. Jesus, Jesus Christ, God, no! <laughs> you are the fool, Mr. Harry. Punch. One of the great fool victims of history. For you have accepted the role of king for a day. And who but a fool would do that? But you will be revered and anointed as a king. You will undergo death and rebirth. Resurrection, if you like. The rebirth, sadly, will not be yours, but that of our crops. I am a Christian. And as a Christian, I hope for resurrection. And even if you kill me now, it is I who will live again. Not your damned apples. Good old Edward. I, I did love Edward. Oh, yeah. um, all right, Nick. Yeah. So the, the the next track is the rather playfully titled Heroin. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> it's not it's... lost on me, that one either. Not lost. <laughs> It's. I always find this really interesting. I, I think I wrote a thing the other day. I don't know if I published it or not. Maybe I did about the fact that you know I've never 
taken drugs. And so that experience, yeah, it was about supergrass. I'd written a thing about supergrass on uh, Caught by the Fuzz and how, you know, that invokes, evokes a life that I never had. You know, I, I didn't even have friends who took drugs because of my religious upbringing. You know, it was just, it's completely alien to me. And I, I wonder if that also was part of the problem uh, with Dogman Star for me, that it was so seeped in that world that it proved difficult for me to get to it. And until I started using, okay, prescription drugs, but until I started using drugs and saw how they could alter my mood, I couldn't really relate to it um, in some ways. And I'm not saying for a single second that you you need to be ingesting, you know, copious amounts of magic mushrooms or falling down a K-hole in order to enjoy Dogman Star because you don't. But, <laughs> but I, th I think to create that connection, it certainly helps. So yeah, heroin. We start off by invoking the memory of Lord Byron. She walks in beauty like the night. Mm -hmm. One of my favourite lines from Suede of all time, which is pornographic and tragic in black and white. Oh yes, I've, I've, I've marked that too, yes. It's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. just great. Pornographic yeah. and tragic in black and white. My Marilyn come to my slum for an hour. Who is Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, you know, um, it's this, uh, Brett's got this character, which is isolated alone in his dingy room, falling in love with this fantasy figure. And uh, yeah, could be Marilyn Monroe, pornographic and tragic in black and white, as you say, you know, all these pictures, um, these classic pictures come to my slum for an hour. Yeah. And then the narrator is, yeah, yeah, he's got this claustrophobic, an alienated feel you know it's this this way that the characters from the debut album weren't like that in so much that this one has an existence in the real world and uh, but one that is hollow and confusing and uh, that, that that's, a, that's a great story somehow finds safety and solace from this um, outside life which he has no connection with in this glamorous magazine icon in his isolation in this now uh, which is kind of like an early comment on the disconnection of society, I think, you know, from the real world and this infatuation with celebrity culture, perhaps. I don't know. No, I, I, think, think, I think you could be onto something there. I, I wonder as well, is there a nod to, to Justine? Then, uh, well, who can say, but I wouldn't discount it, you know. Um, it's a you know it's a, it's a very beautiful song, uh, heroin yeah, yeah. In, in all sorts of ways. Just the use of the word aching as well. That's one of my favourite mm -hmm. words, aching, um, and that this idea of him dying for hours. Yeah. You know, a anybody who's ever found themselves, you know, yearning for that kind of human or that physical or that sexual connection with somebody, unrequited or lost or whatever it is gets that feeling right yeah, that you yeah. you are just you know you're there you are dying for hours and hours it's just it's a wonderful example of how much people like you and i and i think a lot of the the, the suede fan base certainly the ones that have been there from the, the get-go you know i think a lot of us had lives that weren't too different from brett's in very many ways certainly emotional lives that weren't too different you know we were we were flawed we were tragic we had aspirations beyond the working class backgrounds that we came from you know we wanted to write we wanted to make music and I, th I think Brett better than anybody else from that time captures that sense of wanting to escape from whatever it is that's that's caging you mm. yeah yeah absolutely right then we get to well I mean it's tricky this one I, I, I was about to say something very grandiose, which, as you know, is not like me, Nick. I don't like to... <laughs> oh, no. It's not like you make grand statements at all. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like to deal in hyperbole. Uh, right, The Wild Ones. Mm. Perhaps I the greatest song ever made. Well, 
I um, recently wrote an article which said that Disappointed by the Flamingos was the best Britpop single. And I, I will stand by that to the grave um, until I'm lying dead in a ditch. Uh, thank you, Prime Minister Johnson. And But The Wild Ones isn't a Britpop song, so I feel comfortable with that. <laughs> it, it's, it's certainly one of, if not the great singles of the period, right? I mean, it's it's up there with, with Live Forever. Two very different beasts, I'll grant you that. Yeah. But it, it certainly is a real high point in the Suede canon and very early on in the Suede canon. Um, just, it's so... There's something very pastoral about it, right? Which was also quite a departure for Suede. Something quite pastoral, something almost folky about it. It's this very kind of delicate beast. Um, and I'm going to use the word myself now, achingly romantic. Yeah, Absolutely. There's a song playing on the radio Sky high in the airways on the morning show Yeah, the wild ones, huh? It's a beautiful song. It's delivery and execution while being based on this kind of recurring theme of self-loathing and yeah telling the story of a dying relationship and for me uh, there are very few songs um that come together as strongly on the album as this and uh yeah i don't know why it's a soft strumming the the strong prominent vocal it's very clear it's very upfront. then you get the rolling undulating bass when it comes in the understated drums i think it's really ironic that this is such a cohesive band effort i feel mm. as it was probably recorded in separation you know with bernard contractually obliged to record it in whatever studio he was in and uh yeah i think while while much of dogman star has been kind of described by many as being you know the debut album turned up to 11 while being filtered through mixers filled with sludge and that's a production thing which you know always bugs me i think ed buller did a disastrous job on some of these but um it's on songs like the wild ones and still life i think these are these are the album's real true currency you know these are the the songs which make um which make sense in the band's progression they're so they're a step forward and i think it's these are the songs you look to when you think what are the steps in Suede's greatness, and this is one of them for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and some beautiful lines again, you know, we'll shine like the morning and sin in the sun. I mean, I can't think of very many things that are more romantic like that, you know? Mm. I mean, it's just, beautiful. Yeah. you know, you can just see these young lovers lying under a, you know, crumpled, once pristine white sheet, the sun streaming through the, the gap in the curtains, and then ready to do it all again, you know, to sin in the sun. It's just, it's so beautiful, you know, and uh, yeah, I feel quite maudlin now. Right. Uh, <laughs> let's move well, swiftly on. Well, let's let's move on to something very, very different, um, and that's Daddy's Speeding. When flash caught the silver sun, took the film to number one. Crashed the car and left us here Broken glass for teenage boys Trapped in steel and sound alone Yeah. What the hell is going on here? I don't know. This one is, for me, particularly unsettling, I think. Yeah, this, you know, that icy stabbing piano. Yeah. That, yeah, that kind of discordant arrangement, this weirdly slow tempo. You now the subject matter, you know, the death of a screen idol in a car crash, all this feedback and then white noise, the wavering in and out. I don't know. It's a tough listen for me. 
It's 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 like J. G. Ballard's Crash. Exactly, but, that's it. Yeah. But with, but with but with James Dean in the driving seat. Uh, yeah. You know, there's this sort of you know silver screen idol, you know, beautiful, handsome, blah blah blah. The car crash. I know that's a very obvious connection to make before anybody tweets me about it. Please save your fingers. But it has that kind of dark sexual, and not you know a very different sexual energy to the the sexual energy we just talked about but you know you know the sun streaming through the windows and crisp white sheets you know this is something altogether darker but equally sexual um there is something really i mean can i use the word sordid about it i don't know yeah sorrow turns his eyes to mine whiplash dreams of gasoline you know daddy's speeding dared the dogs it there's just so much going on here. It's a very, very unsettling song. Yeah, it is. I think I would describe it as being cold. There's something cold about it. It's something very kind of, I'll use this, overuse this word, I'm sure, during this this podcast, but bleak is what it is. There's something very stark about it. And it's not, there's no feeling to it, really. It's not, there's no real connection. It's something really, it's like, was it whiplash caught the silver sun took the film to number one you know it has something slightly kind of paint a vulgar picture about it you know with the smiths yeah. kind of like being killed for a reason or like dying for a reason but that reason is shallow and that reason is for profit or that reason is for popularity and uh, yeah the, 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 i listened to it again today and i sat there it's like yeah i didn't like it the first time there's something about it which just sets my teeth on edge a bit which is a, an amazing thing for music to do, but um, it's not something I would go back and joyfully listen to. Well, there's a, a, a film by uh, Gaspar Noé, the, the French director, uh, called Irreversible. I don't know if you've seen Irreversible, Nick. And I haven't, uh, no. Well, that, that, that is not a film that I would encourage anybody to watch. It is a, a, a relentlessly bleak, deeply disturbing, a thoroughly unpleasant um yeah, the nightmarish vision of hell. And the first time I watched it, <laughs> uh, that mm. gives the game away, I haven't watched it on more than one occasion, but the, the first time I watched it, I couldn't actually finish. It was so cold. There was something so unpleasant about it that I, I genuinely couldn't make it all the way through. And in fact, despite, I've now probably seen it three times, but I have never seen it three times in one sitting, if you know what I mean. I've always yeah, so taken it in parts. In total, you've seen it three times. Yeah. Or you've seen it once in... Yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, okay. and and I, I, Daddy's Speeding has something of a similar effect on me. Exactly what you're talking about. There is something really cold about it. Um, it it's, it's a difficult... Um, it's not a difficult song to, to like, but it's a difficult song to enjoy or to connect with in lots of ways. Um, and it's it's a quantum leap, you know, from some of the stuff that was that was going on both before it on the album here, but certainly in the in the suede back catalogue. I mean, there was lots of death and grim sexuality um, before, but this is something very very different, something icy, uh, something emotionally detached. Um, but for that reason, I think it's important. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it's, it's it's something which mirrors a feeling which was happening within the band and at that time, which needed to be put onto record or needed to be recorded in some way. And um, yeah, maybe it has some other hidden meaning that we're not getting. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, now we come to the power. Yeah. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's a strange little song. It is, right. yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to think now if I like it. <laughs> I, I don't know either, to be honest. I've never really been sure what the power is that he sings about. You know, he has these kind of contrasting, exotic in existences, like being in Asia or flying over Africa on the wings of youth. And he contrasts that with like, domestic drudgery, being enslaved in Pebble Dash Grave with a kid on the way yeah. or being down in some satellite town. I mean, I don't get it. I mean, it was my belief at the time that I thought it was he was talking about some power to fight against some other, you know, whatever that might be, on the behalf of everyone, wherever you are and whatever your circumstances may be. And in that way, I always got this slightly disconcerting, we are the world 
charity single vibe. It's like saying, we will fight for you, all you uh, unrepresented, you know, poverty-stricken, wherever you are, or even you on your gap year will fight for you. And I don't know. It comes across as a bit bland to me. And, you know, it sounds well, like Suede are trying to be a little bit too earnest, and that doesn't always work. If you On the wings of you For if you down in some satellite There's nothing you can do Just hit me, hit me, hit me The power Well, just as you were talking there, I, I came to a conclusion, and I, I think this says everything about my feelings about the song. I don't know that this would have been out of place on A New Morning. Hmm. Okay. And I, I don't hate A New Morning. I know lots of people do hate A New Morning. I actually don't hate it. I wrote a very glowing piece about it, actually. But I don't think this would have been out of place on it. And I think it had, it had it cropped up on that album, I'm not sure anybody would have given it a second listen. Um, I mean, it's here. Um, and, well, yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's, it's here. Yeah, You've got yeah. New Generation, which was the, the third single off the album and, and final single off the album. And it's a kind of power stomper of a glam rocker, I guess, in lots of ways. But with my untrained ear, I think there's something wrong with the production. Yeah, I, I find that too. I actually bought the single. I remember buying it as a single. And uh, I've actually, I don't, know, I don't know if I've got it around here, but I've actually got it signed by the band. As oh, well. wow. they, they were um, they were playing in uh, Liverpool when I was studying there when this came out. And uh, I was working at the Royal Court at the time and uh, Suede were sound checking. I managed to get them to sign it. And uh, anyway, that's beyond the point. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I think that it's also muddy. It's something that doesn't sound right as well. I think if it had done, if it had been produced better, um, it would with a bit more kind of bendy glam guitars, which you know came in later after Bernard had left. I think it could have even been a coming up track, but it would have had to have been polished. And uh, this this version on here is like, I don't know, there is something about it which is a bit wrong. Well, it's interesting Damn that it. you say that, I think, Nick, because one of the people that Bernard Butler, I think, wanted, or possibly the only person that Ber- Bernard Butler put forward as a producer to replace Butler was Chris Thomas, who, of course, had worked mm. with like the Pretenders and the Sex Pistols. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I can hear New Generation being sung by Chrissy Hind, and the you know the, I think that's one of the few cover versions that, that Suede have ever done was uh, Brass in Pocket by the Pretenders. I, I can see New Generation with that same kind of slightly crisper, slightly cleaner production. It could have been a really big record for them. Yeah, yeah, that's why. Uh, that's the thing. It's uh, it's been so long since I've listened to it, and I looked through the track listing of Dogman Star and thought, oh, New Generation. I remember that being like such a big tune, and I played it, and I was like, really? Was it was it really that muggy and that kind of understated and messy? I thought it was like I thought it jumped out. I thought it was like very clean and and yeah, I, I was very surprised. At the time, I must have thought something different, but I don't know why, because it sounds wrong. And I thought it was different. I thought it had been recorded differently in my memory, but yeah, I don't know. Well, I've, I've like you, I've got it on single. I've got the 12 inch. Yeah, me too, um, actually. And um, 
I think I bought it. I must have heard it on the evening session or something, and it sounded like it sounded more like suede. Does that make sense? Yeah. It sounded more like suede than We Are the Pigs and the Wild Ones had, and so I felt like okay, I can buy it. Or maybe I didn't. Maybe I just saw it on the on the racks of Stereo One in Paisley, and I had some spare cash at that point. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I, you can kind of see where Bernard Butler's coming from, right? You can see. I don't think you can excuse everything that Bernard Butler did during this period, but you can certainly see that he was right to maybe be looking for a, a different producer, somebody to take this album, this vision that he had for what the album could be, take it in that direction. But before we say goodbye, we've had so many faxes persuade this evening, so many millions of faxes, that I think it's only fair to do one thing, because Swade have actually given us this jacket, right? Okay? Which is based on the, you know, the old shot, and then you can wear it inside out if you're in a dark night in an alley or something. And it's a suede jacket, tall jacket, and also a suede signed CD of Dogman Star. Rob? Yeah? You're going to tell Brett what you say about this cover every time you see it. Go on. What about? Come on, what did you say about that man's bottom every time you see this cover? Cafe? Yes, you did. You said, if it was a woman, it would be sexist. Didn't yeah, you? that's what I said, yeah. yeah. And you said they airbrushed out his things, <laughs> no, didn't you? No, that's what you said. Did it? You said you can't see anything else. Is it true, Brett, at all? No, I'm trying to see things completely wrong. So completely wrong, Rob. <laughs> Still plays it. Satisfied now? Anyway, well, so... Well, don't... Yeah, cancel the band, cancel the band. <laughs> right, right, now what we want to do is a signed CD and a jacket, and we'd like to give it to you at home. So I'm just going to ask Brett. Brett, would you mind awfully, possibly, picking out one of these factors just quickly, like a random or anything, and so we can send it to someone? <laughs> Oh, that, that one. That one. Yeah. Who, is it? Who is it? Um, someone from Finland. Ah. Pia and Hugh Ho. 